1: Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsburg. Thank you for being here. Um, thanks a lot. I'm glad you, glad you made it. Now, this uh, is a conversation, this show. That's what it is. It's a conversation between me and someone that I find truly inspiring, a conversation I hope will leave you truly inspired as well. My goal on this show is to talk with guests that have a great story to tell, who have achieved something remarkable in their lives, and through their story, hopefully get inspired myself, perhaps inspire you too if you're new to the show welcome glad you're here if you are a subscriber welcome back if you do hear anything today that resonates with you please do me the kindness and tweet out a link to the show that's how i get the word out about the show just pick up your phone or however you listen to this and click share and just tweet out a link to the show com. I'm on the internet, I'm um, not hard to find, if you need anything, you can go to com. subscribe to the email list, and if you want to write me, um, that's the, the email that the welcomer, the welcome email <laughs> gets sent out, I'll, I'll reply to them, if you need anything, that's where you can find me. Um, how you doing this week? You good? I've been, uh, I've been working, which is good, I like working, working's nice, um, I'm riding my bike a lot, which I like, helps to keep things on an even keel, helps to keep things quiet, and allows me to uh, sleep better. If I get home, super tired. Apologize. That, apologize. I have to apologize. If you were walking through Darling Harbour in Sydney about 5.15pm oh, on Friday night, that was my headlights blinding you. Sorry about that. Um, it was Dan McPherson that taught me, be safe, be seen. So uh, yeah, that's me with the headlamp that is as bright as the sun. <laughs> Are you enjoying the World Cup? I most certainly am. Um, I love watching the World Cup. I look forward to it whenever it comes around. However, I'm sure that you are as aware as I am of the situation in Brazil that isn't to do with football. Um, the, the disparity between rich and poor, the uh, shortage of social services in that country, the inequality there. Um, I'm sure you know about it. I'm sure you've got friends in Brazil or people that have traveled there that, that can tell you exactly what's going on. So in honor of the World Cup, um, not to put a bummer on it, but just to you know say, oh, by the way, let's have a look at this as well. I'm offering up this episode just to perhaps shed some light on another side of what's happening in Brazil, even if it's a challenge to me, myself, and how I feel about the topic we're talking about. My guest today is a remarkable woman. Her name is Julie Ruvalo. She's an anthropologist who's focused her work on sex and the sex industry, in particular, what it is to be a sex worker in Rio. And she has put together a stunning collection of interviews that you can find online at her project, Red Light Rio. The URL is redlightr.io, redlightr.io. She's on Twitter at jruv, J-R-U-V. And she's a really, really interesting woman. I've known Julie for a couple of years now. She's tiny, She's just, and it's amazing when you see her. Like, you went into the red light district. She's a remarkable, remarkable human being. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've known her for a couple of years. Her clinical, anthropological approach to the subject of sex, sexuality, and sex work was so confronting to me. I just had to have the kind of conversation that she and I have. I had to have it on this show because I wanted you to, to hear it. This discussion, it pulls back the curtain on an industry that I most certainly conveniently ignore or pretend doesn't exist and every time the conversation gets uncomfortable which it most certainly did for me particularly when we start discussing underage sex workers sex trafficking victims and webcam workers it is julie's clinical and anthropological analysis of the situation that really helped keep me on an even keel i was kind of shocked at how reactive i got when i heard what she has to say but I kept having to remind myself that she's coming at this issue not only not she's she's coming at this issue not as a journalist who's trying to find the most sensational headline or the most shocking story angle but as a journalist who's dealing with an anthrop- with an anthropological fact a frank and open discussion of what is happening and nothing else and her ability to release judgment about the sex industry not only the workers but the people who pay the workers was quite confronting to me. I found myself judging myself for not being as free from judgment, if that makes sense, as she is. But she is a realist. You'll hear that she talks from a very pragmatic point of view about quality of life for these women and offers some firsthand opinions about possible solutions for the situation there. Now, I don't really consider myself a journalist. I didn't train in journalism. I did have a journalist visa once, um, but I do feel strongly enough about this conversation to bring it to you. I should give you, though, a trigger warning. This conversation continues numerous references to sex, sex work, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and is often confronting to listen to. Having said that, I sure hope you do listen and perhaps just consider what we talk about. I certainly hadn't considered many of the things that we talk about before this conversation, and I found myself on the other side of it looking at things quite a bit differently to how I had been looking at them. So... I hope you have a similar experience. If not, I look forward to hearing about what you think of it. So enjoy this. I think this is yeah, episode 38. This is Julie Rivolo. Enjoy. Um, so the only thing I would say is people tweet in. And, is this
0: live?
1: Uh, no, no, I'm recording good. it. Good. But people tweet in and say, can you not slurp your tea so much?
2: Okay. So, so if you're gonna slope your tea get as just, close as possible get over like, here. Good. I'll it's a do little that. it's
1: a bit slurpy for some people.
2: Yeah. Well that's how you savour it.
1: But they don't understand how good the Genmai chai is. It's Japanese brown rice green tea. It's so good.
0: Mmm. I like it.
1: It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's the taste of comfort.
2: Too. And I really like see-through cups for hot liquid.
1: Bodum. the key to success. Hi Julie Rubelo. Hi! Hi! How you doing? Good. You got to get right up on that mic, babe. It can, for if you want to sit me. back, you can just drag it with you. Okay. If you want to sit back, if All you feel like forward. sitting, no, no, you can just move it around. Okay. Do whatever you want, as long as you're on top of it. Okay. Yeah.
2: Right just here.
1: Adjust it up, down, whatever, left, right, however you like.
2: Go at an angle here.
1: Yeah, that way we can see each other, which <laughs> is lovely. Hi, welcome.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm
1: really grateful you're in my house.
2: It's um, it's a pleasure.
1: This is. I'm super excited because I've found you so fascinatingly interesting for so long and I'm so grateful I finally have a proper opportunity to expose to everybody else what I know about you, um, which is really exciting. Thank and, you. and your current project, which is which we'll get to. You can follow Julie on Twitter. She's at jruv I don't know how the hell you got a four-letter Twitter handle. I was early. JRUV. Yeah. At JRUV on Twitter. At, and then she has two fabulous websites. I knew her from RioChromatic.com and um, but the new project is red light rio how do you say it when you tell people the url
2: oh gosh it's awkward um red was taken so it's red light r.io is how so you would spell it out it's
1: like red light rio but with a dot io at the exactly. end exactly yeah so red light dot io
2: yeah yeah it's not supposed to sound at all uh there's no like trick or anything that was just what was available no but,
1: but that's it it's yeah. uh an amazing project um about 50 women who support themselves and their, th- and their families through the sex industry in Rio's red light district. But there is so much more to you, Julie. I met you prior to this project. I met you when you were like, oh, yeah, we were talking, we were on a camping trip in Joshua Tree and I was talking about stand-up paddling and you're like, yeah, that'd be really hard to have sex on. I'm like, hang on.
0: you was that? Like, <laughs> Yeah,
1: you did. And, and we were talking about this and it's like, yeah, I wonder if people have sex. in And I was like, why are you still talking about sex so much? <laughs> And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I work for the Museum of Sex in New York. It's like, oh, <laughs> that'll do it.
2: Yeah, a subject of editorial interest the last three years, I guess it's been. Yeah. I've freelanced as the digital co-editor co- of digital publications for the Museum of Sex um, out in New York with a friend of mine, Leah Wong. And we have had um, an awesome extracurricular time gathering voices we want to amplify um, the, the museum has foot traffic in a lot of it, but they get about 200, their digital audience is about 200,000 people a month. Wow. So it's um, lots of sex, <laughs> lots of curating interesting stuff about sex culture and sex content. It's been fun. There's a whole world out there that is not pornography that is about sex and quite interesting. And I feel like the, the museum has an opportunity to help guide people to sexual subject matter without the fear that at least a lot of women have of god if i look up sex online i'm going to get a virus
1: in more ways than one
2: <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> it's such it's, a, it's such an interesting uh, metaphor isn't it if i look at something dirty my computer's going to get a get sick
2: well you start thinking about the stigma around sex and it's crazy it took me a while to tell my parents i was i was freelancing for the Museum of Sex, I was like totally afraid to do it. And then I told them and it wasn't a big deal, but it made me question my own stigmas and discomfort around sex as subject matter uh, for sure.
1: How did you come into it?
2: Um, the Museum of yeah. Sex, uh, they were a client at my last startup in New York and the relationship kind of went from there. Um, it's probably been the only consistent thing in my life since. <laughs> I haven't had a consistent geography or really anything else.
1: But was it always, was was sex always fascinating to you and the, the study of sex always fascinating to you?
2: I mean, I've always been personally interested in my own sex life and um, my friends' sex lives. Uh, when you have, when you are graced with an honest friendship and you start to talk about stuff like that, there's a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of things people don't usually talk about. Um, and if we think... Yeah, so what? let's see, in high school, my first, my best friend became a stripper. That was the first time I kind of dealt with the subject matter because I had a certain view of what strip clubs were like when I was 18 and um, had to come to grips with her being there. So that was probably when I broke the seal in terms of seeing sex up close other than the sex you have yourself.
1: So when your friend told you she's a stripper, was your reaction similar to the reaction that people have that you're trying to break down now?
2: Um I don't know if it's similar to the reaction. My first reaction was, "Oh my God, there's going to be guys your dad's age getting hard-ons while you're giving them lap dances," and that made me that age space made me really uncomfortable as an 18 year old. Um, but I, I people have every kind of possible misconception or or idea of what someone involved in the sex industry is. Since then, I've uh, found out that a couple of my friends have been involved in the sex industry in some way or another. Um, one of my best friends, uh, when she was an undergrad in New York, she was making money to pay, uh, to supplement, uh, her money for college selling fake designer bags on eBay. Um, but then she decided to start posting ads on Craigslist and, um, was an escort on and off for a few years. But I mean, do you know, do you know any people who've been involved in the sex industry that have told you they are?
1: Um, which includes
2: pornography and a whole bunch of other stuff, right?
1: I used to work with a cameraman that shot pornography. He, w- he was in, we worked in television together. That's uh, the closest you've gotten. Very, very low budget Australian pornography. When it was, I think it was still <laughs> illegal to shoot there. I don't know if it might still be illegal to shoot there. Wow. I don't know. Yeah. I yeah, don't know. you
2: start to spend time around uh, people in the sex industry, which is a huge generalization. Um, but I started to think about the extent to which uh, people who do sex work are marginalized. They're, they're literally uh, at our society's margins and not visible. You can't really see people at the margins. They're not um, so readily evident to us. Uh, and stigma, there's kinds of uh, physical stigma that is immediately visible, and then there's other kinds of stigma we carry with us that you couldn't immediately tell looking at me. Um, but if you start to think about I started thinking about who are some, some of the other um, characters in our society who are in the margins. And the first ones that all came to mind um, people living with HIV, people who were sexually abused as children, people who have been raped, men or women, especially men, um, people who are gay. I mean, it's really a recent phenomenon that we're culturally accepting of, of gay people in our society. Uh, if you think about the, the actual act of coming out and coming out as an, a personal act of coming out of the margins, um, and it's, it's, interesting to me that all of those examples uh, are as a result of personal sexual choices
1: oh well, some of them aren't choices like no. certainly sexuality is not a choice no
2: you're right but personal sexual existence if you will uh-huh. you're right not <laughs> couldn't, couldn't say all of those. Things. and raping being raped is certainly not a choice mm, no
1: truly not um truly not but this just started to fascinate you
2: yeah yeah
1: and I'm guessing, you know, was it, it was an urge to just tell, tell stories and maybe bring these people more into the population. Was that, was that uh, what it was? Okay. So
2: the, the, my interest in Rio sex work dates back to 2002 when I was studying abroad in Rio and folks who studied abroad a decade ago in Rio were kind of an interesting, adventurous group of people. A lot of us are still in contact. Uh, and, there were probably about 150 people on the exchange program. Half of them were guys, and I would guess three out of four of the guys had paid for sex or did on a regular basis.
1: While I went down there, while
2: we were in Rio studying abroad, and talked about it, um, and that blew me away as a 20 year old because I had I had this idea in my head of who pays for sex or who sells sex is this kind of very othering type of those are other people or men who can't get any or you, whatever kind of you know uh, cultural detritus I had picked up along the way about. Um, who's involved in the sex industry. And that blew my mind that it was guys that were my peers. Mm -hmm. I remember one, one guy, he was going through his own kind of process of self-acceptance during it. And he would take me to dinner and like, he's like, he wanted to tell me what had happened and see what I would think. You know, he was like, would you still recommend me to your girlfriends? It was really an interesting, I got a really intimate look at this kind of um, moment in time and it intrigued me. So After that, I applied for a Fulbright to compare and contrast the sex industry in Rio and Sao Paulo. At the time, Rio being a vacation tourism mecca and Sao Paulo being a business mecca. And I wanted to look at the different industries and see what was different about it. So this is an interest that dates back over a decade. And the Fulbright board was like, hell no.
1: (laughs) This is a scholarship board?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh They were like, absolutely not. Um, And then I moved into working in the startup industry and um, tucked, tucked the interest away for a number of years until a couple of years ago when I moved back down to Rio.
1: And so what, the the startups that you put together, they funded your trip down there now?
2: Um, no, I like, I spent six years in the digital industry and then realized I was doing work that I didn't want to be doing and wasn't fired up about it. Um, So I just kind of walked. I left my entire life in New York and said, well, why not go back to Rio? I think I left in a winter, so I was definitely feeling like a bit of tropical, uh, tropical weather. So the first time I went down there was on assignment for the Daily Beast. And um, I freelance as a journalist for different publications while I'm down there. But it's more of an extracurricular activity than anything else.
1: Right. and so did you then start on what you originally wanted to do to compare and contrast the sex industries in Sao Paulo Not and Not that exact
2: subject, but I slowly found my way back to the subject matter and there was an academic paper I read online um, about uh, Rio's most famous meetup spot for gringos and prostitutes. It was a beachfront bar called Help. You've been to Rio, right? I have. Did you see Help? Did you, it's like it was the big um, obnoxious- Which beach? Uh, Copacabana Beach and it had like a disco Michael Jackson- <sighs> type of marquee
1: maybe i don't know i went i was i stayed in copacabana
2: it's not just guys it was the first bar i went to and i had no idea i was like the women are really decked out here is this how rio is anyway so they had done ethnographic research about help that's since been closed down and i found their paper fascinating so i reached out to them um over the internet and ended up befriending this couple thaddeus blanchett and Ana paula da silva they're um, both uh, academic partners on a lot of research, and they're married. I call them the Rio sex anthropologists. And they've dedicated their entire careers to studying and documenting Rio's sex industry. Um, so once I fell in with them, um, I felt like I was back, back on the trail. Um, and then one day, Thad took me to the red light district. I was really curious. Also, at least in... So Rio has about 300 different sex venues. Um, and almost all of them are closed to someone like me entering them a lot of them are private houses or massage types of places or spas. Saunas are really kind of a popular. You're, you're a
1: very small, very white girl.
2: <laughs> well, the only way you could, you could be in there is working as a prostitute. I mean, these are really closed-off places, yeah. not the red light district. Um, it's an open-air place. Uh, it's the biggest. If you were to draw out that map of sex venues in Rio, it would be the biggest. It's a cluster of about 100 houses in a kind of U-shape Uh, And he took me there one day for beers. It was me, Thad, uh, Greg Mitchell, who's a gender studies professor at Williams, and a Dutch anthropologist who was doing field work on an area of the beach called Hoare's Beach. And I was like, is this my life? I can't believe this is my life. (laughs) Uh, And the place was visually arresting. Um, Post-apocalyptic, bright colors, wires hanging out, dirt, kind of tropical, um, post-apocalyptic. It's the best way I can describe how it looked then um, I wanted to take pictures. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to come back here and figure this out. So that was my first trip to the red light district. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, but what, what kept coming you, what kept bringing you back? Why did, why did you want to, it was the photos that wanted to take you back?
2: Well, I felt like I had finally found, um, a way in to, to the sex industry. Um, I graduated in anthropology in undergrad and that's had almost no bearing on anything, except that it very much orients how I look at the world and how I look at my journalism, thinking a lot about you know, the extent to which we're participants and observers, uh, and how do you get into a story like that um, and, and find your way into your field, if you will, um, of observation. So uh, I had kind of started to make inroads in a few different other places, but I felt like a door swung wide open when I went to the red light district, so I decided to walk through it. And um, What was
1: it like the first time you were there alone without your Indiana Jones friends?
2: Um it's a it's a really intense place. I went during the daytime. Um I was cognizant of what I was carrying on me. Uh it's really a dramatic place um because, because it is a place of total social despair, socioeconomic despair. Um it's it's really poor. There's a lot of bad stuff that happens to people who live there. Um the, the fact that it's also a sex venue is kind of a dramatizing icing on the cake. Um, but I had never been that up close to problems related to urban poverty. Um, so my first time I was looking for a woman named Grace who runs the red light district, both officially as the president of the association of house owners, uh, and unofficially she, she runs shit there. Um, so I tried to track her down, but she's this really elusive person that never gives interviews and blows off anthropologists and, uh, generally keeps hidden. So it took me about, three or four times of showing up in the morning and hoping to catch her. And she had heard probably that I was looking for her. So then one day I got to speak with her face to face with this like beautiful, shockingly beautiful old woman with dyed red hair and red eyebrows. Um, And I was just pretty straightforward. I was like, I'm not affiliated with anyone. I want to take pictures here. I have an interest in sex work. I think it's bullshit, the stigma that a lot of people involved in sex work have to go through. And I kind of stumbled over a few words and she said, you have my okay to hang out here. Um, If you uh, take pictures of someone, it has to be with their consent and you can't take pictures of the place in general, like no landscape shots. Uh, And after I had that meeting, I felt like I could be there and spend time there and had a bit of um, approval to be there. Protection? Protection as well. There's a militia security force that huh. controls the red light district. So on, I did hear on occasion that there were, I mean, people knew who I was. I stuck out. I was like the only gringa girl hanging out there. Um, so, but I felt safe after that.
1: So the cops don't go anywhere near it? Um, <laughs> is
2: that why the militia is there? Uh, when I hear about cops in the red light district, it's been when they've come in and actually executed prostitutes. Uh, it's like a, the, the one thing of all the interviews I did, the thing nobody talks about is police. Mm-hmm. Like of all the subjects you could possibly talk with someone about in the red light district, people were most closed about security and issues with police. Um, a good part of Rio is run by militias, which are groups of uh, off-duty policemen or former policemen, or former government workers. That's actually kind of going roundabout. That's one of the biggest misconceptions people have about favelas. Um, favelas are... Um, uh, historically unofficial settlements in Rio. One third of the entire population lives in a favela and people have this city of God notion that they're these just crazy violent places run by drug traffickers. More favelas in Rio are controlled by militias than drug traffickers today which is crazy. And as Rio's gone in and tried to kind of clean up and pacify the favelas, I'm not sure if you've seen any of this in the news. Like, hey, plays, they're yeah. safe for gringos. We've put in a air tram and you know, there's an art installation. You can, there's a sushi restaurant, go check it out, you know. Um, they've only been pacifying favelas. They've only been going into drug trafficker controlled favelas and kicking drug traffickers out. They haven't touched, they've only touched one favela that's militia controlled. So it's this kind of invisible thing nobody really talks about. Um, and in the red light district, it's its own militia that gets private security force that, uh, was my understanding, keeps order in there.
1: Now, just if no one kind of has a concept of about where, what the favelas are or what they look like, it's like they're in the hills high above Rio. Most of them. Most of them are in the hills high. Well, the ones I saw were in the hills high above Rio. Like you can really get someone who has what probably looks like a 10 or $20 million house and not 100 meters above the hill. There's ten thousand people living in yeah. in shacks built on top of each other on cardboard boxes. Not really cardboard boxes, but like you know, co- cobbled together reinforced concrete and besser bricks, and yeah, and is built on top of you know another thing that got built on top of another thing on top of another thing with its own wild rabbit warren of of alleyways and pathways. And but they're, they're they're just there. They're just and they're not really going anywhere. Uh,
2: what they all have in common is. Um is that they've been historically neglected by the state, which I found something really interesting. So these are places where trash pickup doesn't come or comes irregularly. Sewage doesn't run in most of the favelas. So you've got 2 million people living in conditions where the actual Rio government has been neglecting them for decades. So you wonder why they're places that have <laughs> problems. I, I'm literally saying that like most of them don't have sewage. Most of Rio... Re- um, Rio only treats 30% of its raw sewage. The rest dumps into the water that you then go and swim in, but the problem's punctuated in favelas. Um, Places of historical neglect by the state. Uh, There are also places where you'll see some of the most interesting community-driven projects, green projects, um, cooperative gardening, all sorts of really interesting stuff. Uh, And there's a nonprofit called Catalytic Communities, CATCOM, um, that's been doing um, a decade's worth of really interesting work with favelas, but looks at them as models of sustainable urban housing. As the population gets bigger on the planet and we're looking at um, solving kind of large scale urban concentration problems, her nonprofit's been doing a lot of work trying to destigmatize what a favela means and look at favelas as examples of how you can actually live well in limited resources.
1: So, speaking of destigmatizing, This is what the Red Light Rio project is all about, which you can find online, Red Light Rio with a dot at the end of the word, (laughs) redlight.io. You'll figure it out, Red Light Rio. Uh, Also check out Julie's other photo blog, riochromatic.com, which is I'm sure some of these photos, these early photos are still there. On RioChromatic.com. All
2: my RioChromatic photos are there. None of the Red Light Rio project. But that's photos.
1: what I mean, the photos that you first started taking. Yeah. They're yeah. All... I
2: have a couple years worth of photographing Rio yeah. culture.
1: Very, very, very yeah. interesting. Uh, but speaking of destigmatizing, you, uh, you started this project to, to kind of, you know, really open up the, the view on what it is to be a sex worker and be a, be a woman that feeds your family, pays your rent, you know, puts food on the table through being a, sex, being a sex worker in this city that's uh, you know, six weeks away from having the world's media attention focused upon it. Mm-hmm. The World Cup is June 12th. Yeah. So it's right there, and, and here we go. So
2: the red light district is half a mile from the soccer stadium. Right. It is hiding in plain sight in the absolute center of the city, um, and it's, like I said, a really poor place. Uh, Rio has been undergoing a multi-year cleanup campaign to clean up various aspects of their culture to make it presentable for all of us who are turning our eye there. Um, they even have a, they, they even started finding people for littering. I mean, they're really cleaning up and they're uh, are taking homeless people off the street uh, compulsory removal and putting, putting them, them into them. crack programs, including teenagers. There's all sorts of bizarre well, Into stuff. rehab? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they're forcing kids into rehab. They're wow. going in and pacifying the favelas and kicking out the drug traffickers, all part of this big cleanup uh, image cleansing, if you will, which makes sense because, I mean, what is the Olympics if not a branding exercise for a nation, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps World Cup as well. Um, so the cleanup efforts have extended to the sex industry, um, even though it's not illegal, to prostitute yourself in, in Brazil. Um, they've been closing down an unprecedented number of brothels and sex establishments, um, the ones that are popular with tourists, absolutely. And the Red Light District, it, the kind of question is, will they be evicted too? Um, because if, if you looked at the last 100 years of history in Rio, the Red Light District only came into being as part of a cleanup effort. Uh, King Albert from Belgium? Yeah. 1920, came to visit, uh, and they rounded up a whole bunch of you know, undesirable members of society, mostly prostitutes, and put them all in this swampland area in northern Rio out of sight, inadvertently forming the city's first red light district, which I find hilarious. Um, Queen Elizabeth, I forget which one. I'm horrible at my history. She came in 1957. Two too, thank you. Her motorcade was also going to go by this area, so they literally boarded it up. They actually enclosed the red light district, uh, and it's actually moved three times in the last hundred years, always as part of a cleanup effort, pushing it to the periphery. The city expands, the periphery becomes the center, and now you've got this eyesore half a mile from the soccer stadium. Uh, but what, what struck me about the project when I started um, interviewing women who work there Uh, mostly women who've worked there for a while. I spoke, it was between two months and 40 years was the range of time I spoke with people who had worked there. Um, But they all shared one thing in common, and they were all breadwinners. They were all supporting themselves and often the sole supporters of their family. Children, uh, a lot of them had kids at a young age, didn't have education, didn't finish the equivalent of high school, Um, had kids early. What were they going to do to support themselves? Couldn't support themselves on minimum wage jobs. So a number of women I interviewed actually left a job to go work as a prostitute versus this kind of notion that you only have to be really down and out to do that kind of work. And other people I interviewed were really down and out. One woman said she didn't have money for the bus ride home one day. It was $25. So her friend took her there and that's how she made it. Um, I'm sure there's more to the story, but that's actually how, how she told me. So limited options in a lot you, of cases.
1: You've defined these women using... You've called them sex workers and you've called them prostitutes. How, what do they call themselves?
2: Um, they usually use the word prostitute, um, but it's an incredibly contentious subject if you're talking to um, activist feminists in the US. Um, if they were to listen... In
1: Australia to people, as well, this is why They would
2: say that prostitute is a horrible, dirty word and that I'm being prejudiced by using it. And I would say that... Um, in, in the case of any group of people, especially a marginalized group, you should ask them what they want to be called and use that. And in the case of the women I spoke with in Rio, they usually refer to themselves as prostitutes.
1: So just could you, in your experience, what are some of the, in the, in the Brazilian society, which I know is, is far more conservative than a lot of people think. It's very, very kind of based on Catholicism and, and, and quite strict in many ways. You can't go topless on the beach. You'd think, you wouldn't know it by looking at the, some of the under, underwear, I mean swimsuit designs, but it's a, it's quite a conservative uh, country. I mean, this is a country that they wouldn't let Iron Maiden play because oh, really? they yeah because they thought they were the devil's music. Like, no, really, it was full on. So, what are what are the misconceptions that people have about uh, the sex workers Within in Brazil? In Brazil, yeah,
2: actually, that's interesting. So, Brazil has a strong Catholic legacy in their culture, but ca- Catholics have been losing ground for about the last decade to a very strong and growing evangelical movement, uh, and um, uh, the, a lot of uh, there's there's certainly an alignment between the evangelical group in Brazil and a group of people that refer to themselves as abolitionists, um, people who want to abolish prostitution from the face of the planet. Um, if you ever hear about an anti-sex trafficking campaign and there's a lot of them these days, there's almost always a group of self-identified abolitionists behind it who are trying to eradicate prostitution from the face of the planet, um, which is actually problematic for a number of reasons we could go into. Um, But I've seen a little bit of that alliance happening in Brazil. Um, A lot of the foreign aid funding that used to go to funding uh, HIV and AIDS projects is now going into anti-trafficking campaigns that are not trying to actually help anybody doing the sex work. In the Red Light District, I was shocked that there was... I did not see the presence of a single NGO anytime I was ever there. Um, Nothing, nothing. The only only thing even remotely related was a doctor who's been volunteering for almost 30 years. He opens up a, a health station on Friday mornings and gives free care, and the governing association of the Red Light District subsidizes that and pays for his supplies and such. Short of this one doctor, there's nothing... It's a completely abandoned place, mm-hmm. uh, except that there's an evangelical um, nonprofit that set up shop nearby that uh, wants to save people from prostitution and also judges them for being involved in it.
1: Uh huh. I can guess what the saving people from prostitution comes with.
2: Well, everyone I asked why why they do the work. Um, it's one of the clips I've already put online. Um, why Why are you here? Why do you do the work? Um, My friend Aline, who works in the red light district, who I filmed the project with, would frame it as, are you here because you want to be here or you need to be here or you're forced to be here? Um, And with the exception of a few people who said, I actually enjoy this, everyone else said I need to be here and I'm obliged out of financial necessity, not that I'm forced. So if you take this concept of rescuing someone from their work, how are they going to make money? If the whole point is that they're there to make money to... Feed their kids that week, what good does shutting down their place of work do? It's a completely silly approach.
1: So is the stigma associated with that kind of work the same as here in America?
2: Uh, maybe a little bit less so in Rio, because it's actually not illegal. So um, the law is pretty messed up, actually, the way they, they constructed it. Um, it's not illegal to do sex work. Uh, if you were a client down there, you couldn't really get arrested for paying for sex, but they criminalize any third party who benefits from the transaction. Uh, so you could say, "Oh, great! That means pimping is illegal because the pimp is a third party benefiting from the transaction." But the law is so uh, vaguely written and poorly enforced that technically, if I were a prostitute and hired a security guard to keep me safe, he's a third party benefiting benefiting from the transaction. So that's could be construed as illegal. And any venue that serves as a place either for sex to actually happen or just as a meet up place for people to meet prostitutes is technically also benefiting as a third party. Um, So there's more acceptance in some ways and then in other ways it's pretty complicated.
1: Because it's not like you'd have a dinner party here in LA and someone would go, oh, what do you do? Well, you know, twice a month I earn $10,000 a night.
0: (laughs) That'd be awesome.
1: The rest of the time I just sit on the beach and work out and write my books.
2: Well, and there's a bit of a cultural double standard at work because um, a woman doing that work isn't necessarily going to want to disclose it to anyone, but um, it's uh kind of a in the same way we think of like what would be a traditional american bachelor party when a when a guy gets married what's his last night, wild night out in um rio i had a lot of my guy friends tell me that they lost their virginity to a prostitute and that when they were kind of coming of age their dad their uncle their friends took them for their first sexual experience so that uh
1: that's not uncommon in country areas of australia as well oh, really? yes
2: and I get the sense that that's kind of something from the older generation that young people aren't doing with the same frequency, but there's certainly more openness around the the topic when you're talking about things like that.
1: You mentioned uh, hiring a security guard as a sex worker in, in the red light district of Rio. What are the dangers that these women face?
2: Um, well, in the red light district, I've never heard of anyone hiring a security guard. That would be more like an escort who works alone. Uh-huh. Um, in the red light district... Uh, <laughs> Um, let's see in the last six months people I've heard about dying there first of all everybody says it used to be a really violent place 10 years ago, 15 years ago it was really violent that's what everybody who's been there that long tells me Uh, they say it's relatively peaceful now but it's also empty and there are no clients anymore. Um, But even in a relatively peaceful time, I counted half a dozen people who died in the last six months that I had friends I interviewed tell me about. Um, One um, was a hairdresser who died of AIDS. Um, I think one woman died of a drug overdose and the rest of them were killed. Um, One woman went up with two guys. So the first floor is a bar and where you meet and then you go upstairs to have sex. Um, in these little cabins. Um, and she went up with two guys and was found later with a bullet in the back of her head. It was pretty clearly an execution. A few people died. I've, I've had a, a couple, two friends who have had to leave the red light district because they owed debts and couldn't pay them um, and were told to leave at risk of their life. So there is a really kind of gnarly side to things. Um, but it It's not an area I spent a lot of time looking into. It was kind of an off-limits area. Um, What's happening with... I I never wanted to jeopardize my position there, certainly digging into, you know, who's actually running this place and who's getting paid off to run it and who's an off-duty cop and such. Although I did spend one night... I slept over in one of the houses one night, um, and it was was about ah, 10 o'clock, and these two guys that were like teenagers came through and, as if it was totally routine, asked for a certain amount of money... And the cashier paid it. And I was like, what was that? And she's like, that's the security force. We pay them every day. I was like, oh, really? The same amount? She's like, it varies. We pay them what they tell us to pay. And I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs>
1: the protection money.
2: Yeah, yeah. But a lot of women I interviewed complained that there is no protection. There's no security presence at all during the daytime. And... Um, and it seemed to be, it seemed that they were never around when people needed them. What I heard a lot of was women looking out for other women. Um, most of the houses are managed by a woman who also works as a prostitute. And I interviewed a number of managers as well. And um, they had some pretty kind of, uh, one woman in particular, Marcella, had, she said, it's, it is dangerous. And I'm the only one here to help anyone out if something goes wrong.
1: All these interviews you can find at Julie's website, redlightrio.com. That's R-E-D-L-I-G-H-T-R dot I-O.
2: Yes. That's
1: also another way to say <laughs> That's it.
2: another way to say it. You can it. also
1: follow Julie on Twitter, at JRuv. I think she signed up on day one on the first morning that Twitter opened.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was early. <laughs> at
1: JRuv. And her earlier work you can find at Red Light, uh, at uh, Rio Chromatic, com. When you were doing these interviews, I guess, you know, the, the first, the big question, we talked about misconceptions, but what's the, what's the, What's the biggest lie people tell themselves about sex workers?
2: Uh, I think that the thing that shocked me was when I realized these are people like anyone else, and they're women, and uh, on the other side of the world in different circumstances, I totally could relate to them as independent women. Um, so I, I feel like just so the, the lie that these people that
1: these women, the lie that these women are lower than anybody else, and they're they have some sort of, I don't know circumstances that are totally non-relatable to me and my lifestyle. Therefore they've made this choice and they're doing this thing that I couldn't comprehend.
2: Well, how can we have an opinion about a type of person that we've never met or don't know anything people about do it? do it
1: all the time. Babe. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of, uh, completely bizarre opinions and things. A lot of people don't trust sex workers and think that they're not to be trusted and that they have no morals and will do anything for money. Um, that's certainly one, um, Misconception, I would say. I mean, it depends. I I really enjoyed the fact that this was a geospecific project and within a specific geography, within a specific segment of society. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times people try to talk about these issues on a very generalized scale. And that's like talking about, you know, ecological preservation on a global scale. That's a big question. (laughs) That's, That's complicated to unpack. Yeah. Uh, in, in So the cool thing about the project, um, so I ended up making friends with a woman named Aline, and we hit it off. And she's the first person I interviewed. And then after a few months went by, we started interviewing friends of hers and colleagues. Uh, so it was really a joint project in terms of filming. We did a lot of the interviews together, but I also gave her a camera, and she would interview people while she was at work. So we ended up gathering um, over 50 interviews, 24 hours of content, and I organized it all according to the conversation subject matter. So it's structured according to what people talked about, and there's 230 different keywords that I ended up tagging and organizing the content around from why I work here to what my family life is like to how I feel about the rumors that we're going to be evicted for world cup to has a client ever tried to have sex without a condom? I mean, just a whole bunch of different topics and I'm editing the content and releasing it in short conversation bites basically where you can hear two to 30 women weigh on, weigh in on any particular topic. And that's kind of how I'm, how I'm publishing, publishing it on the website.
1: Uh it sound, it's just sounds so fascinating and certainly a way for people to explore a subject that they may otherwise be so afraid to explore. Certainly if they're coming at it with stigmas and, and, and ideas of, of what women who do this job are yeah. in the world and what they are to the people around them.
2: Yeah, there's, I, I haven't seen anything like it, certainly not online. Uh, people have done ethnographic oh. research and published You know, uh, text based reports that look at a large number of prostitutes in a particular area. I haven't seen anything done on video like this. And if you think about porn and prostitution, which are both kinds of sex work that involve being paid to have sex, pornography by definition is visible and prostitution by definition is not a visible act. Um, So uh, to have, to have people agree to have themselves be shown and have their identities be made public was pretty, ridiculous i thought i felt really humbled that anyone would agree to do that
1: there's certainly a lot of trust these people had in you yeah Uh, and the interviews are very they're very honest with you because they really i I get the sense when i watch the interviews i get the sense they really feel like this can help
2: it helped having a lean there as well i would have been a complete outsider otherwise but i had a a, I, i filmed this project with a woman who had a lot of history with with the women we were there with we ended up it's called. A, it's a, call a It's
1: called a fixer in the news world. <laughs> she was my fixer. She was your fixer. That's the person. Like when you're in Syria, they're the ones. Like, oh, we won't go down the street. We'll go down. This, we'll go down that street, and I'll call my friend Habib. He'll talk us out.
2: And that was the that was the biggest expense of the whole project. I've self funded this for the last three years, and I'm proud to say that my biggest expense was paying her to work with me on it. And actually, we also paid everyone we interviewed um, a bit more than we paid them about two programs worth for their half hour interview time. A program being in. Uh, having sex with a client. That's what they're called, programs. Ah. Programas. (laughs) Programas. So I didn't do any programs today, or I just did two programs, yeah. Right. So we paid everyone for their involvement in the project. Um, I actually didn't get legally binding consent forms until a year later when I came back down and had a sense of what... Uh, you know, journalists... <laughs> when I'm doing journalistic work, I don't ask people to sign their life away in all mediums before we start the interview. Yeah. Um, so I went in there just filming it and talking with people and realized I had to come back and get legally binding, um, a long agreements signed if I was going to ever publish the content and have anyone see it. Um, so my expectations were sufficiently low. I went back six months later, um, and Aline and I tracked down... Um, Fifty of the 64 women we'd interviewed, and every single person we tracked down agreed to participate still, which was pretty wild.
1: That's amazing. Um,
2: So returning to the question of of stigma, um, one of the questions I always like to ask was, uh, if if you came across a genie in a bottle and got three wishes, what would you wish for yourself or your family or, or life? Like, let's get out of the reality a little bit and imagine... You know what? What would you change? And um, the number one most popular response was: I wish that society, my husband, my kids, my mom, um, my neighbors, would judge me just a little bit less for the work I do. You don't have to respect me for it or accept it, but I wish I would be judged a little bit less. Uh, And that was pretty wild. When you're talking with people who are, uh, some of the women we interviewed were homeless and supporting their families. Uh, People in pretty dire conditions a lot of the times, although that certainly wasn't the case with everyone, to have them say um, the stigma is the biggest issue they face really, really changed things for me and threw me for a loop. No one asked to be rescued. No one in two years of working down there, not even on their fantasy list. No one was like, get me out of here. No one said, you know, have an American swoop in on a white horse and get me the hell out of here, um, which is another reason I would look at most of the mainstream anti-sex trafficking movement and say you guys are completely out of touch with any kind of reality. Um, it was, It was the stigma, and that stuck with me.
1: That's... I okay, I, I, I want them all to come out now. I want to see all these interviews now. You can follow Julie on Twitter at JRUV and you can see these interviews that we're talking about, Red Light Rio, redlightr.io, all one word. Thank um, you for
2: bearing with my awkward URL. Hey,
1: I think it's great. It looks great. I'll think, <laughs> I think by the end of this chat, we'll have workshopped a way that you can quite easily say it. <laughs> so I think you should just call it Red Light Rio. That's redlightr.io. That's great. That works fine.
2: That works great. Because then
1: they go, oh yeah, red light Rio with a dot io yeah. at the end of what you spell, <laughs> red light Rio. You have um, th- this looks. This is very very important work, and I'm very grateful we're here to talk about it. But you and I have had also we had a very long conversation ar- about trafficking, um, and you actually did a TED talk on this.
2: Um, personal Democracy Forum looks Look, like a TED talk.
1: Looked like a TED talk to me. <laughs>
2: In fact... Same production quality. It was
1: branded as a TED Talk, wasn't no, it? No,
2: no. Pers- that's how good it is. No, Maybe I a,
1: saw it as a TED Talk.
2: It's called the Personal Democracy Forum. It happens once a year in New York.
1: It looked like a TED Talk. Anyway. It um, and it sounded like a TED Talk. I thought you, you crushed it, but I was hoping you could talk a bit about it today, particularly... Um, so I remember when we, were, when we met, we were on, in Joshua Tree in, in the desert, and we were hiking through Joshua Tree, and you were telling me some of the stats about about uh what's that website live jasmine yeah yeah and and how that what, what were you talking about you're talking about that and and people trying to shut down craigslist and and how it all worked. it was and, and it was from you that i learned you're talking about your friends selling knock-off handbags it was from you that i learned don't buy the knock-off handbags not because they're knock-off handbags but because the same people that bring in the knock-off handbags bring in the 13 year olds and i was like what said, what yeah. Was that you? The, no. about? <laughs> the same comes down the same traffic lines.
2: No, uh, no. Someone it, else. Then. Related, related discussion, but not one I had with you.
1: Okay. Well, the one I was talking about, the, what I was fascinated with was I was hoping we could talk a bit about it. Was that the like the, the relationship that people have with um, the uh, prostitution on online? What you talked about in that mm-hmm. in that talk that day.
2: Um, so brief brief history of sometime in the two thousands um, a movement of people gathered together to try to shut down the adult services section of Craigslist. I don't know if you remember that there used to be one. I that do.
1: And You Jeff would often get an out. email going, best of Craigslist, check this out. Look what somebody, I want you to shit on me on a mattress yeah. and I'll pay you $500 to do it.
2: All sorts of stuff, just complete, completely open um, adult services. Um, and the movement started putting pressure on Craigslist and saying really bad stuff's happening. There were a couple of Craigslist killers. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, it was I a, do. Uh, bad bad PR time for Craigslist, this coalition got together and said, we have to do something about this. And Craig and Craigslist uh, started putting safety measures in place to filter out who might be trafficked. I mean, if you're talking about millions of ads posted, how do you filter through that and find someone who might be there against their will or someone posting on their behalf for those kinds of things? Um, and if you go to my talk, you can read about some of the measures that they put in place. But Craigslist... Um, five or so years ago was still doing more advanced work than any website is currently doing, um, to filter and find and stop sex trafficking. Um, but that was what you're
1: saying is a lot of the time that these, these women who are legitimately imprisoned and, you know, being used by others, for making money by these people are advertising online, say, come and have sex with this girl, and this girl is being held against the will. So first
2: of all, anyone under 18 who's offering sex is considered a sex trafficking victim, even if they're doing it on their own accord, right? The idea is that minors can't give consent. Um, After that, it's kind of a slippery slope. Uh, The media images would leave us to think that there's actually people being locked up in cages, um, you know, and fed subsistence diets, but that's a, that's a pretty shocking image, and we have to be responsible about how we throw the word slave around and who we talk about as sex slaves, or, which is another phrase that's commonly used to refer to victims of sex trafficking. Um, the, the sneaky part about the anti-trafficking movement, the mainstream anti-trafficking movement, is that they actually consider all prostitutes to be sex trafficking victims, So their logic here is that no woman in her right mind could ever consent to selling her body, although we give it away for free all the time. And, you know, we could look at a lot of marriages as sexual contracts as well. But no, no woman, by the way, guys who sell their bodies for sex are exempt. This is a very heteronormative line of thinking we're working with. No woman in her right mind would do that. Therefore, she's either physically enslaved or she has an evil pimp or she's psychologically enslaved herself. Um, So they actually want to get rid of prostitution, including stopping people who are doing it on their own volition, which is kind of bizarre. So anyway, the the long story short on the the research I was doing digitally, the same movement that shut down Craigslist adult services hopped to the next property, which was Backpage.com, which serves classified ads for the Village Voice and a whole bunch of weekly, alt-weekly newspapers. Um, And actually, there was a direct bump in Backpage... Backpage's uh, traffic, once Craigslist was shut down, it it doesn't just disappear. So people who were advertising sex moved to Backpage. The same coalition of people got together and tried to shame Backpage into closing down. Backpage was doing uh, an unbelievable uh, job of trying to uh, filter through their millions of ads and see who might be a victim. They actually cast a much more conservative net than they needed to. Um, and end up, you know, flagging a lot of people who actually aren't victims of anything. That all st- struck me as odd because Backpage's traffic at the time paled in comparison to other sex destinations online. And Live Jasmine is arguably the biggest uh, adult website in the world, although the PR team at Pornhub really thinks they're number one and um, disagreed with me when I published it. I have an article I published on Forbes.com called How Much of the Internet is Actually for Porn. Um, a lot less than you would think. But Live Jasmine has the most traffic, and Live Jasmine is not a porn site, it's a webcam site, which means you're having live one on one interactions with a real person somewhere in the world. Uh, a lot of the women, from the data I've learned about Live Jasmine, work in Eastern Europe. And I was thinking, isn't this a bit ironic that the anti sex trafficking movement is so focused on shutting down one single property called Backpage.com? when there are potentially millions of women who are doing unregulated work and might be underage or victims of sex trafficking.
1: What would you say to people who have used these services? What would you say to someone who's, you know, late at night seeing the live Jasmine thing? I'm alone in my house. I've got my laptop. I'm here on my couch. No one knows credit card. Boom, boom, boom. Hello, Ukraine.
2: I've unwound a lot of my personal prejudices around people who pay for sex on different platforms and ways. Um, So I'm relatively, I guess, open-minded from a personal perspective, but I take a pragmatic approach to this. Uh, If your goal is to make conditions for women involved in sex work better or safer or more lucrative, if you actually wanna help people by making the work that they're doing better, um, then, then there's maybe even room for this idea of being a responsible consumer guys pay for sex. I, I don't get the feeling that there are that many of them that are actually looking for girls in cages. I, where could you find them? I have no idea. Um, but, uh, are you having sex with somebody who is not in great circumstances? Who's under 18? Did you ask? I mean, so there's a bit of, a, um, we, we're never going to get to that discussion though about what would proper etiquette be and proper treatment of a sex professional. It's like, that's like in light years away of, in the discussion when everybody is currently oriented around raiding brothels and saving people from the, themselves.
1: Right. Because I, I'd, you know, I, I've had conversations with, you know, so what did you do last night? Well, it was a real drag. My, my credit card got maxed out. So I was on Cam Contacts or whatever it was. Because <laughs> it's like a 10 bucks a minute or something, uh-huh. something like that. And these are guys in Australia.
2: And that's virtual work, so it's interesting uh, because it's um, webcam work is kind of prostitution and kind of pornography. It's kind of digital live sex. A lot of traditional porn publishers are moving more and more into webcam types of productions. Um, in the U.S., pornography is legal, but prostitution isn't. I mean, where does that leave webcam work? Webcams being possibly the single largest manifestation of sex work currently on the planet, Right. Um, but to ground to ground the conversation a, a bit more, at least as it relates to sex trafficking and sex workers, uh, the way it grounded for me was when I actually met women who had, were sex trafficking victims in the course of my research. And four of the 50 women we interviewed told stories that would categorize them as sex trafficking victims, and none of them fit the mold of um, who we might perceive as a victim or needs rescue or what have you. Uh, so I can go through them if you want and give you some examples um, the first was an uh, 18-year-old who started prostituting, her, prostituting herself at 16. She's in my interview clip on the website now, um, uh, which was disturbing to hear. She was she kept making a point that she wasn't there for money or anything other than liking it, and she felt comfortable in the red light district. So there you have it. At 16, her choosing to go into sex work makes her a sex trafficking victim. Um, another woman. Uh, She ran away from home at 12. Her mother had a series of boyfriends that sexually abused her, and she finally hit one of them with a spaghetti pan and ran out of the house at 12 and ended up getting involved in sex work. I don't know if it was immediately when she was on the streets, but definitely um, when she was a teenager. And she is currently a prostitute. So both of those two women were sex trafficking victims. By definition, are prostitutes. The third one, moved to Rio and stayed with her friend when she was 16 and her friend's mother forced them to go have sex for money and kept all the money and that is just really effed up (laughs) I mean I don't know if it gets any more effed up than that and I asked her I said why didn't you run away why didn't you leave and she said do you know what it's like when you feel like you don't have any options she said I just came to Rio I didn't know anyone I was staying at her house Uh, so that's number three also still a prostitute. Um, and the fourth was, uh, was an adult when it happened. She already was a prostitute. She went to Portugal for a while, as a lot of women in Brazil do. They'll spend a few months in Europe working. Uh, and she wound up in a horrible situation at a brothel where they kind of textbook horror story, seized her passport, kept her money, and she had to flee in the snow. And she was relieved to get back to the red light district and work. So four examples of women who were sex trafficking victims and are prostitutes. How do you help them? If, if the goal is to, you know, save sex trafficking victims, then we have to also look at the fact that a lot of people who were at one point a victim of forced sexual labor are currently sex workers entirely of their own volition. Um, and going back to the anthropologist Thad and Anapala, who, who have oriented a lot of my work in Rio, um, that, that's hilarious. He was like, okay, you want to abolish prostitution? Find equally attractive, equally paying jobs for all of the third, women in the third world and more broadly across the planet. Like, you go ahead and solve that problem and give people other, other ways to make money, including women who don't have a high school education and have three kids to support and have a history of doing work that you're probably not going to want to hire them. I mean, who's, who wants to hire a prostitute? Uh, you start to kind of look at the stigma that we have in, all around us. Um, and you're not really gonna get to the root of any kind of problem unless you look at what are the options that an individual has when they go into sex work? What are their current options that they have? And if your goal is to amplify their options, how would you go about doing that? Probably not from seizing their one source of income and having them weave baskets that you sell to a, you know, some ritzy store that has a tag that, you know, you saved a sex trafficking victim because this basket was woven. Like, that's great, you know?
1: Thinking about, like, when you think about it that way, when you think about what other options are there, people might say, "We'll just go get a minimum wage job. Just yeah. go, just, just don't.
2: People would say, just don't. Yeah, and some women I interviewed said, I wish I hadn't but here I am, or I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, but here I am, or I hope to leave soon, but here I am.
1: How much money can like these, these women earn?
2: In the red light district specifically, um, uh, the average among the women I spoke with, they would take home 15 to $20 per program. Um, and the house keeps about $5. Uh, if you look at that compared to the broader landscape of sex in Rio and fat and Anapala actually have all of this data they have a decade's worth of pricing and customer data on hundreds of venues it, They actually, it's, it's an unbelievable gold mine of data. Um, but in the scope of the larger sex industry in Rio, the red light district is not the poorest place. There are places that are a lot cheaper or a lot more poor. so there are places where you can have sex faster for five, ten dollars. Um, there are certainly places that are, uh, that attract women who are more destitute. If you're, if you're a prostitute on the street, that's usually a more destitute form of prostitution than working in a, in an actual venue. Um, so from that point of view, they're, they're certainly not on the poorest end of the scale. A lot of people would go, oh my God, you know, $15 for having sex with someone. But I'll give a couple of other, um, uh, context points as far as price goes. If you work as a manager in the red light district, not as just any prostitute at the house, but a manager managing the house, um, which is generally a 24-hour shift, which is crazy to me, managers make about $35 for a 24-hour shift, which is peanuts. So they make the equivalent of about two clients for staying up all night for 24 hours. Um, And they're also financially responsible if someone steals a can of Red Bull, which is really expensive, it comes out of their paycheck. So um, the man, women who choose to do management work certainly aren't doing it for the money. And then minimum wage in Brazil is $300 a month. Um, if you had a few children and had to get by on that, good luck, I wouldn't be able to.
1: That gives a, that gives a good context. As someone who lived in Brazil, overall, how did this affect your view of, of that country?
2: Uh, God, I just... I. There's something about Brazil I've always loved, which is why I keep returning to it. Um, I feel really grateful that I was able to do a project like this and really humbled. Um, It feels like it was the thing that I was meant to do down there. Um, I have an incredible affinity for Brazilian culture, particularly Rio culture and the language. Uh, And so to get to spend this kind of time with women who are from there and coexist and talk with them about their lives a bit was really a moving experience.
1: What would you say to people who, when they watch the World Cup, what are some things they need to be aware of that's kind of going on nearby?
2: Well, what you're going to hear about with the World Cup is that you're going to hear in the media that the World Cup is the biggest sex trafficking event on the planet. Um, Not only the World Cup, the same media cycle happens around every Super Bowl and now the Olympics. Um, You might have heard it for this last Super Bowl, that there's going, the number is always the same, 10,000 to 100,000 sex slaves will be imported for the games to satisfy the voracious appetites of these sports fans. Um, So that's what you're going to hear in a few months with Brazil, especially because Rio already has a a vibrant sex industry and has a sex tourism industry. It's known as a destination um, for homosexual and heterosexual sex. So it's already kind of a sexually charged environment, and people have their own kind of conceptions about Brazilian culture. That's what you're going to hear. Um, but there's a, a group called the Global Alliance Against Trafficking in Women that did the most comprehensive report I've ever seen investigating what the connection is between a mega sports event and sex trafficking. So they looked at the last three Super Bowls, two World Cups, and two Olympics, I believe it was, and found that there is absolutely no data connection. The, the commonality is that there's a media cycle preceding the event. Uh, saying 10,000-plus victims will be trafficked in for the event. Um, But this organization actually went and followed up with all sorts of local precincts and dug into the data and said, was there a lift? Did these amped-up efforts you had to catch sex trafficking victims work? And at least for the last Super Bowls and last several Olympics, and last several World Cups, the answer is no.
1: So why would that story get told? Who's...
2: Because it's a very, uh, it's a very convincing story. Ah, soccer, sports fans, single rowdy men, sex,
1: away from their wives, away from their
2: wives. You know, keeping in mind that the World Cup. I mean, what percentage of tourists are families, and not just you know, yeah. single guys looking for a good time. But it's a very compelling story. And again, the philosophy of the movement behind this story is to abolish all prostitution from the face of the planet. So their goal is to paint everyone as a sex trafficking victim and anyone who pays for sex is an evil man. And I just... I don't get it. Yeah. What would you say <laughs> so to someone... That's what I would say about World Cup. Like, keep an eye out for the hype. There's even a Snopes.com page for Super Bowl sex trafficking. Uh-huh. There's actually a page that says, is this real or a myth?
1: So what would you say to someone who, up until now, that has Until they've listened to this, has that has been... Their point of view, when someone says, oh, this is prostitution, they go straight away, well, that woman is clearly forced into it, and this man pays for prostitution, therefore he's a horrible man. What would you say to that person? I
2: would say talk to a sex worker, but they're not necessarily all eagerly lining up and self-identifying so that you can talk to them. At least as it relates to the issue in Rio around sex trafficking, World Cup, and um, the sex industry. I'm really excited, as part of the Red Light Rio project, not just to publish my own interviews, but I'm publishing a digital bibliography of all of the research that's oriented me on this. So there's about half a dozen subject matter experts who've been studying this for a long time, and I'm publishing their work or excerpts of their work to orient people on exactly this stuff. So if anyone out there is interested in uh, sex trafficking issues in Rio or, or any of the related topics, um, there's an anthropology tab on the page and you can click through. What
1: kind of internet publisher are putting references? Come on. <laughs> Especially just print lies in big pole type with some clickbait and a picture of a cat.
2: Actually, um, the, that, that happened to me. I love citing. As a writer, I think citing things and hyperlinking gives me more credibility to say here's where I got it from. And in the digital world, it's kind of idiotic not to hyperlink. Um, but short anecdote, I uh, did a story... I put a blog post on Rio Chromatic about Justin Bieber's brothel visit this year. Because Justin Bieber, I'll be damned, not only went to a brothel in Rio, but he went to the most most visible brothel that is the number one most popular destination with foreign tourists. So of all the kind of exclusive private places with private entries and exclusive services he could have used with discretion, this guy decides to walk up to the one in Ipanema, a block from the beach that is – There's no parking, you just walk in the front door. Um, Anyway, so I use that as an example. um, I actually um, know a woman who worked there for a long time, so I used it as an example to talk more broadly about um, the prostitution crackdown and what working conditions are like there and how nobody ever talks about that. There's a misconception that the nice places have better working conditions, but um, the place Justin Bieber went uh, is not only one of the most expensive brothels in Rio, um, but they take about half the money The house keeps about half the money. In the red light district, they keep 25%. At the brothel Justin Bieber went to, women work compulsory five or six day shifts for 12 hours. In the red light district, you come and go as you please. Um, So there's not necessarily a clear line between how much a woman gets paid and what her working conditions are. All of this is a digression to say that after I published that, uh, a couple New York Times writers reached out and said, we're inspired on doing a story about the prostitution crackdown based on your article and then proceeded to paraphrase and rip off my article with no attribution which was hilarious uh,
1: well, that's a drag
2: yeah but that's okay
1: so when people go to find out more about what we've been talking about red light rio that's red light r.io when they go there will they be able to is there a way that what you've done here can translate to sex workers in other countries
2: i hope that I hope that as the project grows that there's the opportunity for me or for someone else to do work like that. I think that video, um, video narratives um, from people talking about their own life experience are incredibly powerful things, and we can watch them over the Internet. Uh, and, and I would love for, for myself to be able to or for somebody else to be inspired and pick up a project like this and do something where you get to hear from people that were purportedly interested in helping or saving Um, And I'm more broadly interested in in what it means to be a marginalized member of society um, and what it means to shine a light or amplify a point of view that is not often heard.
1: But what about like what they see and the the things they may learn? Do you think what these women and their experiences that they tell you about are are, are talking about, do you think that that could be paralleled? in sex workers in other countries, like if someone was to you know, read this about Rio and they live, I don't know, let's say in, in New Orleans or they live here in Los Angeles or they live in, in, in Sydney, um, would they be okay to, I don't know, assume, just like surmise that some of, the things, some of the things they're talking about could be similar? Some of the reasons behind the women doing these work can be similar?
2: Yeah, I would imagine so. Um, you've really got to um, ask, you've got to ask the kind of socioeconomic question as well when people talk about why they do the work. Um, A lot of women I talked to kind of justified um, that they do it because they need to, because they actually need the money. Um, That's not necessarily the case when you talk with women in higher income or higher socioeconomic levels who do it to supplement their income. Um, The rumor when I was an exchange student back in 2002 was that in our Catholic university, some of the women were also prostitutes. So it was kind of a double-sided. It's like, wow, my friends are doing this, and it's with a girl who might be sitting in my class, you know. Um, on, and and uh, so, when you look at kind of what what does choice mean, what's it really mean to be forced or to make free choices? I find that it's useful to look at that not in a vacuum. Like I'd like leaving the theoretical conversations for undergrad, when it was fun to talk about, you know, in a perfect, just world. I live in very pragmatic terms, and in the field of anthropology, you look at choice as a spectrum of options that a particular individual has. Um, what were their options at the time, and how many did they have? Um, And I found that to be a a useful question. If anyone was to try to pick up the subject somewhere else with a totally different group of people in different contexts, that would certainly be a way to ground yourself.
1: I'm so grateful we could have this conversation, Julie.
2: Me too. This is like so much for having me. I haven't talked about this to anyone. Really? Yeah. This is the first time I just put the site up a week or two ago and
1: well i'm stoked that you relented to my constant <laughs> my mailbox kept reminding me every time you didn't email back i'm like i emailed you again, I emailed <laughs> you again so we really have to talk about this and I was, because it's a conversation that like i said we had in the desert and i think it's a conversation that more people need to hear as confronting as it may be for some folks to listen to and i i agree i understand and i can i concede that this may have been very difficult for some folks to listen to but
2: yeah my mom has a really hard time watching the interviews
1: <laughs> no doubt but I would encourage you to go uh, redlightrio, redlightr.io and um, just have a look at some of these interviews and, and just see what the work that Julie's been doing and just, I'd guess, go with an open mind.
2: You can also sign up. So I'm publishing about a new interview a week. So mm-hmm. if you subscribe, you'll just get it sent to your inbox and they'll all be around different topic matters. So
1: Fascinating. Follow Julie on Twitter, at JRUV. Twitter. let her know you heard her here. Um, thank you, Julie.
2: Thank you so much for having me. My
1: pleasure. I'm going to take your photograph now. Awesome. That's Julie Rivolo. You can find her on Twitter at j r u uh, v. You can also visit her website redlightrio. Redlightr.io. Fair to say that the website's not safe for work, but I'm sure you figured that out by now. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for being a part of this show. This really interesting exploration and independent broadcasting. Thanks to everybody that made the show this week possible. Um, you know who you are. Uh, so thank you very, 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 very much. If you need anything through the week, you can find me on Twitter at Osher Ginsberg, also com. sign up to the email list, and um, when you get the autoresponder, just click reply to that, and that's my um, that's how you can email me. So yeah, thanks um, thanks so much. Hope you have a good week. I um, I'm off to... I gotta got take a shower I've been in the bush I smell like I smell like a campfire and air regard <laughs> that's what I smell like <laughs> 50 plus sunscreen um, but it's good it's good to get out I saw a bower bird this morning that was pretty awesome anyway have a great week thank you so much for making this journey into independent broadcasting possible for me I love making this show for you and I I'd love the feedback thank you so so much I look forward very much to bringing you next week's episode sleep well and dream of beautiful things see you next time